Two, you on eight. Welcome to EMS Cast, where we provide high-level education for you, the providers on the streets. I'm joined by Dr. Maria Marrera today, who's a professor at the University of Colorado. She's the medical director of continuing education and SIM in the Office of Education at Denver Health, and she's director of professional development and well-being in the emergency department at Denver Health. And we just had the pleasure of hanging out with her at the Rocky Mountain Trauma and Emergency Medicine Conference, which was a blast. And thank you so much again for having us. And thank you for being here to talk with us today. Well, thank you for having me today. Yeah, and I'm super excited about this. So you have a education that you give annually to the paramedic division here, as well as to the residents here about some difficult scenarios with regards to obstetrics and pregnancy in the emergency setting. We're actually going to do two-part episode with regards to some of these complications, but this episode specifically, we're going to talk about difficult deliveries in the pre-hospital setting. We're actually going to talk about a bunch of different techniques to help manage these difficult deliveries. Now, some of these techniques can be somewhat visual, which is difficult for an audio medium, but Dr. Marrera has actually created some really fantastic videos demonstrating these techniques. So we will have a link in the show notes to our website where these videos will be posted. So after you listen to this or while you listen to it, you can pause, watch the video to get an idea, a visual idea of some of these techniques. But first, Maria, just tell me why is this important for us to know about these complications? and be prepared for them. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, one of the most fun things, the most fun talk I do over, I've done it for many, many years now for the paramedic division. And like you said, for the residents. And, you know, I think from an EMS perspective, it's even more important to be prepared because I feel like our paramedics, our providers are going to be more likely to get to the scene and have to potentially deliver a baby right there without sort of, you know, having everything that we have available in the hospital and without having obstetricians available right away to them. So I think it's important to understand what can go wrong and understand the different types of deliveries and have some tools and techniques to be able to successfully deliver a baby when it isn't just a normal vaginal delivery. Perfect. So before we dive deeper into kind of what things can go wrong, I think a good place to start is just a quick review of what are the normal physiologic changes in pregnancy and what do we expect to see with like vitals and stuff like that? Sure. Great. I think it is very important to understand what happens so that when you see abnormalities, you know, is this normal for pregnancy or is this a a true abnormality? And so pregnancy is a high volume and low resistance state. Initially in pregnancy, there's peripheral vasodilation, and this leads to a fall in the patient's systemic vascular resistance. But there's also an increase in volume. There's 50% increase in plasma volume, and that's due to estrogen effects in the renin-angiotensin system. And so kind of you know, starts to absorb more fluid and that increases your plasma volume. But at the same time, red blood cell volume goes up. It just doesn't go up as much. It goes up about only 30%. And that's why you have a physiologic anemia of pregnancy. But the increase in red blood cells is due to progesterone's effect in promoting erythropoiesis. And so that's why you get this increased blood volume. So what happens is that you're going to start seeing changes in vital signs. So your blood pressure is going to be decreased from the non-pregnant state. Now, this isn't a huge decrease. It's only a couple of points. In the past, it was thought to be a lot more, but it turns out it's probably only a couple of points, maybe five points or so. There's more of a decrease in the diastolic versus the systolic. Also in pregnancy, you have a, an increase in heart rate, about 10 to 15 points. So 120 is not normal, even in pregnancy, but probably you're 
thinking about 90, maybe up to 100, depending on what the pre-pregnancy heart rate was. And so the decrease in blood pressure is interesting because you said you just increase blood volume, you increase plasma volume. So there's more volume in this system. So how do you then end up with a decrease in your blood pressure? Right. And that's because of the vasodilation that's occurring within the system that is decreasing the peripheral vascular resistance. So that's sort of that low resistance state, right? But you still have higher volume and you need that higher volume, right? Because you need to get more blood supply to the uterus. And what is actually also interesting, so because you have this vasodilation, you have this increase in volume, but then what, right? Like the heart has to be able to support this increase in volume, but it also has to get blood to the uterus where for the baby as well. And so the heart actually increases in size and it dilates and there's increased contractility in the heart and it actually can increase about 12% in size. And because you need to, and, and that contractility, that force is greater also because the volume going to the uterus is going to increase in pregnancy. It increases 10 times. So typically you get 60 mLs per minute of flow to the uterus. In pregnancy, it's 600 mLs per minute, right? But it's necessary because now you have a little baby growing there. So that's kind of how those two things work together. There are also changes that happen in the respiratory center. So progesterone also works on the respiratory center to actually increase the depth of breathing. So you get increased tidal volume in pregnancy up to about 40%. But you actually also decrease your functional residual capacity, right? Because there's all these other, that uterus is growing, the diaphragm starts to get elevated, it goes up about four centimeters in pregnancy as well. And then in pregnancy, you have increased consumption, it's about 15 to 20% increased consumption, because you know, you need that oxygen for the fetus also. So now you have decreased reserve, but increased consumption. So pregnancy, that's why it's always good to give pregnant patients oxygen. And honestly, probably keeping them above 95% is ideal for the fetus. And it's really to kind of make sure that the fetus is getting enough oxygen less so for the mom, that that need of the 95%. So those are kind of some of the things. And then we have to remember that in pregnancy also, the PCO2 is going to be different. So the PCO2 in pregnancy normal is 27 to 32. So if you have a patient with a PCO2 of 40, that's abnormal in pregnancy. So those are kind of some of the things that we will see in pregnancy. Okay. So just a quick review, you're going to have a little bit of a decrease in your blood pressure, but Less than 100, still probably concerning, less than 100 systolic blood pressure. You're going to have a little bit of an increase in your heart rate, but more than 110 in your heart rate is still probably concerning. And then you're going to have a little bit of an increase in your respiratory rate, but more than 20 may still be concerning. Yeah. And the reality is that respiratory rate, even though everybody thinks pregnant patients breathe fast, the reality is that the way the changes that occur really is more about breathing deeper, not necessarily faster. Now, there is a little bit of an increase in respiratory rate, but it's more of sort of that deep breathing. Um, but yes, yeah, so I would agree. I mean, if you're getting a respiratory rate above 20, that's still tachypnea and you need to kind of figure out what's going on. And I think, you know, the blood pressure, it's great if we had pre-pregnancy blood pressure, right? Because we know there's patients that sit around 95. And that's normal for them. The problem is that we don't know that. And so I agree, I would say that if the blood pressure is less than 100, I would still kind of think, especially if there's any trauma or anything like that involved, what's going on, right? Are they bleeding? Cool. Perfect. Now that we know how our pregnant patient is going to look with regards to their vitals, let's talk about what are the things that can go wrong during a delivery that we need to look out for? Yeah, so there's a lot of different things that can go wrong. The the reality, though, is I want to say most times things go fine, right? Women have been delivering babies 
for years and years and, and they can, you know, potentially deliver them on their own, right? And we're there to kind of help support, make sure that the baby's okay after delivery and also hopefully help support during delivery so that the mom doesn't tear as well. But there are certainly things that can go wrong. There could be an abnormal presentation, which makes us a little concerned just because of the potential for the cervix not to be fully dilated, right? So when you have breach or you can have also a shoulder dystocia, so if the shoulder's getting stuck because now that baby's not going to deliver as quickly. So one, we need to be aware of potentially abnormal presentations. You know, there could be a cord presentation. I think we're going to talk about all these different things and how we deal with each of them and some techniques. And then later on, we're going to talk about the complication of bleeding and postpartum hemorrhage, which that can happen as well. I think you just need to be ready for all of these different things. The mom can tear, can bleed from a tear. And so you just have to think through this and have sort of an algorithm in your mind of how am I going to approach any of these situations? Yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it. When you gave me this talk and this training during residency, it is terrifying. All the all the potential things that can go wrong during pregnancy and that you might have to deal with quickly because they're very time sensitive as well is, is somewhat terrifying. But to reinforce what you said, the vast majority of the time, these deliveries happen normally and smoothly and without complications. So realize that'll be the case. Have your plan for how you're going to deal with a, a normal vaginal delivery. But like you said, have an algorithm, be aware of these situations so that if they do occur, you've thought about them beforehand and you know what to do and you know how to act quickly. So before we get into that, let's start with just the normal vaginal delivery. What's our plan for that? All right. So in a normal vaginal delivery, right, we're going to walk through kind of what happens and and, uh, and what goes on. So basically, the baby's head first delivers, and usually the baby's head on its own will rotate to the left or the right. So you can just support the perineum, support the baby's head, just to make sure it doesn't deliver too fast. But basically, just kind of let it happen naturally. Once that head is delivered, then check for a nuchal cord. So just check around the neck, make sure you don't feel a cord around there. And we're going to talk a little bit later what you do if you do find a nuchal cord and what are the different options. But let's say there's no nuchal cord in this one. Then you place a hand on each side of the baby's head and you're going to put gentle traction or pressure downward to deliver the anterior shoulder. And it's really just a gentle kind of pressure. And then you deliver the posterior shoulder with upward traction. Typically, once you deliver that anterior shoulder, that baby's going to fly out, right? So you're playing the catching game and trying to make sure it doesn't fall. So once the baby is delivered, now you're going to clamp and cut the cord. And so the question is, how long do you wait? There has been some change in practice in the sense that typically now we want to do delayed cord clamping. Now, when we say delayed, it's not really for that long a period of a time, but COG says or recommends about 30 to 60 seconds. If you look at the World Health Organization, they recommend one to three minutes, but that's probably because they're dealing with the whole world, right? And it's there's a lot of different systems in place and a lot of different sort of approaches to, to care or what's available for care of these babies as well afterwards. But the benefit for term infants is that they will have higher iron stores in about six months. For preemies, there's actually even a greater benefit because there's an increase or additional benefit of lower incidence of necrotizing enterocolitis and also intraventricular hemorrhage. And there's also a decreased need for blood transfusions in those babies. So that's why we wait at least 30 to 60 seconds. 
I would say just think it, it what's easiest for me is to think of one number. I just think one minute. So wait about a minute. If the mom really wants longer, then you can as long as the mom and the baby look okay. Now, you know, that's always the caveat to this. If the baby looks like they're in trouble, then you're going to clamp and cut and start resuscitating the baby. And if the mom needs resuscitation to start resuscitating the mom. Okay. That's great. Just to quickly review, you're going to take a look, look for a head presenting. You're going to control that head so that it delivers in kind of a nice slow manner to try to help prevent any sort of vaginal tearing. And then once the head delivers, things kind of progress a little more quickly. You're going to deliver anterior shoulder first and then posterior shoulder right after that and catch baby. And then in my mind, I think, you know, if baby comes out, is looking well, you do your drying and stimulating, make sure there's a good strong cry, wrap it up, give it to mom. And then usually by that time, I would think you're at about a minute. And that's when you can kind of start thinking about clamping the cord. But like you said, if baby comes out, not breathing, blue, needs resuscitation, immediately clamp that cord and get that baby into a position where you can perform high quality resuscitation. Absolutely. Perfect. Okay. I think one of the most common delivery complications, you already alluded to this, and I forgot to mention it in my summary, is when that head delivers, you want to make sure you check for a nuchal cord. And so what do we do if we find a nuchal cord on presentation after that head delivers? Yeah, so you have a couple of different options. And I will tell you, I think the preference now is to try to manipulate the cord as minimum as possible. But let's go through the couple of different ones. So first, what what happens is so that head is delivered, you feel for the nuchal cord, you notice that there's a nuchal cord. So one of the things that you can do is you can start putting some gentle traction. Now, this is not sort of like, you know, harsh traction or pulling hard, because you can rip the cord. So it's a small sort of like, like small gentle traction small movements, and you try to reduce that cord over the baby's head. And then once you reduce that cord over the baby's head, then you deliver the baby normally. The other option is, and you're still going to have to put a little traction on the cord, but the other option is to push the cord over the baby's shoulder towards the mom's perineum and then deliver that baby through the cord. The third option is what's called the somersault maneuver. And I think this is currently the preferred option for obstetricians, partly because you don't have to put any traction on the cord. You don't have to manipulate the cord at all. So if you think about it, when we're delivering a baby, we tend to deliver the baby away from the mom and towards us, right? If we're like standing, you know, away from the mom. In this case, what you do is you put one hand to support the baby's head. So below the baby's head and the other hand you put on the baby's occiput. Now, remember, the baby's going to be either looking left or right. So you're going to push the baby's occiput towards the direction that the baby is looking and towards the mom's leg. And so you're now delivering the baby kind of in a horizontal and sort of oblique kind of plane. Because I always say like, deliver the baby as if you're trying to get the baby to kiss the mom's leg. And so you're trying to deliver that baby towards the mom's leg in a horizontal manner. And then once the baby's delivered, you flip it. That's sort of the somersault part. I always say that once the baby's delivered, you can also just manipulate the cord (laughs) and bring the cord over the baby's head. But the nice thing about that is you're not really manipulating that cord. And the reason it works is you're keeping that cord really close to the mom. So you're not really pulling much on that cord at all. The last option, and honestly, I think this has gone more out of favor, but I will tell you, it's something we did when I was a medical student on OB. And then when I was a resident doing my OB training is you clamp and cut the cord. The problem with that is that once you clamp and cut the cord, you've taken away the baby's blood supply, right? So now if you run into a shoulder dystocia, you're in trouble. 
That's why I say that one is an option, but that should always be the last option. And you need to feel pretty comfortable that that baby's going to deliver and that you're not dealing with a shoulder dystocia. Okay. All right. What, do, what about if we get down there, we take a look and we see a body part, but it's not a head. Mm, what yeah. do we do then? <laughs> uh, you call, <laughs> no, you cry, you call yeah, OB. Yeah. No. So, so it's going to be dependent, right? And, and I will say that, say, let's start with, say it isn't a body part, say it's the cord, right? So if you look and now what's presenting, it's the umbilical cord, which is different than a nuchal cord. Because remember the nuchal cord, the head's already delivered and it's around the cord. Because sometimes there's people get confused with those, but the nuchal cord's different in that the head's delivered, the cord is around the neck. And now we still, we got to deliver that, right? The umbilical cord or the cord presentation is now the cord is presenting. So the baby hasn't delivered at all, right? There's no other presenting part. The problem when the cord presents is that we worry about either compression of that cord by the presenting part of the baby, or we also can have spasm of the cord if the ones the cord's exposed to cold. Both of those things are bad because compression and spasm can lead to decreased blood supply to the baby, can lead to hypoxia, bradycardia, ultimately death or, or really permanent disability, and we want to avoid that. So what we do for cord presentation is we really need to place one hand between the cord and the baby's presenting part, and what we're going to try to do is elevate that presenting part off the cord. The other hand feels the cord to make sure that there's pulsations in that cord, and what you're doing is actually working. You can also use gravity to help you. So you can actually put the patient in Trendelenburg head down to make sure that kind of gravity kind of helps push that baby back up into the uterus or you can also put the mom in a knee chest position sort of head down so that also that's kind of having gravity help you those are kind of things that can help so I would say if you put your hand between the cord and the presenting part and you're still not feeling, you know, and you're elevating that presenting part and you're not feeling pulsations in the cord, you need to try something else, right? Put them in Trendelenburg, get them in the knee chest position. Just make sure that what you're doing is relieving that pressure off the cord. And the reality is in this situation, when I do these lectures to the paramedics, I say this is when you want to play rock, paper, scissors to determine who's going to be doing this and who's driving because you are going to be there for a long period of time because basically the person who is relieving leaving that pressure off the cord is going to stay there until this patient gets to the OR to be delivered by C-section because that's how these are delivered. Yeah. So you got to, you got to put your hand on the cord. You're looking, you're checking for pulsations. That's right. a good thing. That's what you want. Right. You don't want pressure on that cord that stops those pulsations to the baby. Right. If you don't feel pulsations, you're going to start trying different techniques to relieve pressure off of that cord, whether it's lifting it, putting them in Trendelenburg. And then your goal is essentially to try to slow delivery. So the goal of putting them in Trendelenburg is kind of slow that baby down, mm. use gravity to prevent it from putting pressure on that cord because these need to be delivered in the right. OR. Right. And you don't want the, the mom to push, right? You want to keep the mom so you can give her, I mean, if you had to, you can give her some pain medicine, right? Keep her from, have her pant, like have her, you know, but anything to keep that baby from delivering. Potentially, if you feel there's like strong contractions or if they're really pushing and they can't stop, you could also potentially give them tocolytics if you needed to, just to kind of stop that, especially depends on how far you are right yeah. from the place where they're going to deliver. That's what I was going to ask. Is there any role for like mag? 
mm-hmm. in these situations. Yeah, or even um, subcuterbutylene or something like that. I mean, we'll talk about a little bit later when I talk about breach here in a second. I'll talk about also nitro. You can also, because everybody has nitro in the rigs, you probably have more than you need because yeah. right, the sublingual are about mm-hmm. 400 micrograms, whereas typically we'll say 50 to 200 is what you need to kind of, if the uterus is contracting and not you know allowing you to deliver the baby, um, but that's we're going to talk about later, but you can use those same things, but anything yeah. to kind of relax that uterus would, would be helpful. Great. So yeah, so great opportunity to make a phone call to base too and talk about mm-hmm. some of these other strategies if if they're warranted, if she's having strong contractions. Yeah. Okay. So you, you jumped into it. So let's talk about, you know, what if you have a frank breach or, or leg presentation? Yeah. So, you know, breach can come in a lot of different forms and there's some that there's no way that you're going to deliver that baby, right? If the shoulder's down in there, you're probably not going to deliver it. And there's forms that, you know, if there's a leg presenting or an arm, there's probably time because the reality, if you think about it, what happens in a normal vaginal delivery when the head is presenting first, which is what we want, is that head puts that pressure, right? Head is the biggest part of the baby's body. So it puts pressure on that cervix and it helps that cervix dilate to 10 centimeters, which is what you want ideally. When you have a presenting part that's a lot smaller, like a foot or a leg, it's not going to dilate that cervix that quickly, right? And so the cervix might only be dilated a couple of centimeters, so that baby's not going to come completely through. So in those situations, yes, call your medical direction. In those situations, they're probably going to say, drive really fast, get them to the hospital, right? Now, there's a situation where it's a frank breach, where the buttocks is presenting, and typically frank breach, which is the most common, the buttocks presents, and then the legs are flexed at the hip and then completely extended at the knee. And if that's presenting and it looks like the mom's delivering, you're going to have to deliver that baby. And so, you know, the other thing to think about is this doesn't happen very commonly, but what will happen is the lower gestational age, the more likely you're going to have a breach. The rate is about three to 4% in term, 7% at like 32 weeks and up to 25% at 28 weeks. So the farther they are along, the less likely you're going to see these breach presentations. But what you want to do initially is stand back. And I know that's hard because we always want to act and we want to like take control right away, right? But at first you just let the mom push and let the mom push and have the baby deliver until you see that umbilicus or feel that umbilicus at the perineum. So the, the umbilicus has delivered. And then you can also pull a little bit on that, on the cord, so that it gives you a little bit more room to work. So you can put a little traction on that and, and sort of deliver a little bit more of that umbilicus. So once the mom's up to the umbilicus, now you can start to help in the delivery. And if the legs are extended, you can apply a little bit of pressure on the back of the knee because that'll help flex that knee. And then you grab the ankles and deliver the legs and you do one at a time. So you kind of deliver one leg and then deliver the other. The reality is they might deliver on their own as well, but if you need to help, that's kind of how you do it. And then you kind of let the mom push until you see the scapulas. And then you can kind of go over with one of your fingers, go over the shoulder and kind of bring that the baby's arm across their chest and down, sort of delivering one arm and then the other. And then we get to the head. And this is when you kind of start to stress because you're like, the head is the biggest part of the baby. How do we deliver this head? So what you want to do is you're going to take your dominant hand and you're going to rest the whole, the baby's whole body over your dominant arm. And you're going to place the index and the middle finger of that dominant hand on the fetal maxilla. So on their cheekbones. And you're going to apply pressure downward to get the head like inflection. Your non-dominant hand actually supports, is on the posterior aspect of the neck and shoulders, kind of supporting that back of the baby. 
baby's head. At the same time, you can have someone else provide some suprapubic pressure because that'll help kind of also help flex that baby's head. And now you start to elevate the the baby's body from the horizontal about 45 degrees and you'll deliver that baby. Now there's other techniques where you can just let the mom, you know, sort of push, push and then deliver the baby. And once the baby's down, you can grab the feet and pull the baby up and sort of let the baby's head deliver. The other option, and there's been some studies looking at having the moms deliver on all fours in that knee chest position, right, that we talked about before. And there's actually a great video on YouTube, which is just happening naturally, and the baby sort of just delivers easily. And it it looks like that's sort of doing it in that manner has less complications. And I've always been asked, well, why don't we do that in the hospital? I'm like, because it's hard sometimes, you know, they're on a stretcher, getting them in the knee chest position might be difficult. I worry they're going to fall. They have to cooperate with you and be willing to do that. So there's, you know, there's probably a lot of reasons why we don't do more of that. But I believe that um, that's the midwives do it, you know, and, and when they know that they're dealing with a breach. But for most of the time, when we come to these scenes, we didn't expect this, right? And all of a sudden we see the breach and we now have to deliver it. So that's the technique of delivering this baby. The possibility is that the baby can get stuck. So the head, right? That's what you're going to most likely get stuck. And this is where I was talking about. Part of it could be that that uterus is contracting around that head. And maybe if we just relax it a little bit, we'll be able to get that head out. And so that's where you can give like sub-Q terbutaline or you can give nitro and typically say 50 to 200 IV of nitro or your IM sub-Q terbutaline. But like I said, there's always, you know, sublingual nitro in the ambulances. So you can also use that if you need to. And yes, it's probably a little bit higher dose, but what you want is that uterus to just relax to deliver that head. And we'll, we can deal with like the contraction of the uterus later. Fascinating. Okay. So that was a lot of info. So just go over that. Yeah. Again, (laughs) if you, you, you take a look Mm -hmm. and you see say a hand, an arm, a leg, it's a small body part. It's it's going to take a little time to deliver because that, that cervix may not have dilated fully yet. So just drive quickly to the hospital. You probably have a little bit of time. But if you see that frank breach, you see that buttocks, then you're going to need to deliver. And first, you're going to stand back and do nothing and let mom deliver up until the umbilicus. So until you see the umbilicus of that baby, and then once you do, you can kind of reach behind the the back of the knee, the popliteal fossa, and kind of flex one leg out at a time. And then again, let her deliver until you see the scapula. And then you can kind of reach over the scapula and deliver each arm across baby's chest one at a time. And then once you get to head, that's when you want to deliver quickly. Can be more challenging because it's the biggest body mm-hmm. part. You can have your partner press and give a lot of suprapubic pressure. You're going to lay baby face down, belly on your forearm, and place your two fingers on their cheekbones to try to apply gentle traction or pressure to flex that head as you kind of deliver the body and then have your other hand on the the baby's back to kind of deliver down as your partner's applying suprapubic pressure. If the head gets stuck, maybe the uterus is contracting too vigorously around it. And that's when you're going to want to call base and say, hey, should I give something like nitro? Or if you happen to carry terbutaline, mm-hmm. should I give that or or something like mag to try to help this deliver? Correct. Perfect. Okay. Let's move on to, I think, maybe one of the scariest complications when it comes to delivery. And that's 
that's the shoulder dystocia. So ex- explain to me what a shoulder dystocia is and why it's so scary and time sensitive. Yeah. So, you know, with a shoulder dystocia, the head has delivered. And now the way to recognize it is what happens is the head is delivered, but that anterior shoulder, the baby's shoulder is stuck at the pelvic symphysis and it's not delivering. And so typically what you'll see is the mom contract with a contraction, the head comes out a little bit. And then as soon as that contraction relaxes, it goes back in. This is called turtling. So they kind of look like a turtle head coming in and out of the shell. And the baby's just not going to deliver that shoulder because that shoulder's getting stuck. We get concerned because the head's already out and you don't know what's happening with that cord inside, right? And you can be, the baby can be compressing the cord, especially with each of those contractions. The baby could be becoming hypoxic. And so the ideal is that once that baby's head is delivered, the ideal is to deliver the baby within five minutes, just for best outcomes, to decrease the amount of potential hypoxia and drop in pH that is occurring to the infant. And so that's what we're dealing with with the shoulder dystocia is basically just that the shoulder's getting stuck. It's not coming out through below the symphysis pubis and we need to help it come out. Okay. And how do we do this? How do we help it get out? Yeah, so there are some different techniques. And, and you know, I will tell you, I'm going to go through an algorithm and a, and a way to think about it that goes from the least invasive to the most invasive. That doesn't mean that this is what you need to follow, but you just need to understand what different techniques we can use and how we do this. And typically the thought is that if you're delivering a shoulder, as soon as the baby's head comes out, you should say baby's head is out at 3 p.m., right? Say it's a 3 p.m. baby. Baby's head's out at 3 p.m. You identify the shoulder dystocia. We're dealing with a shoulder dystocia. And then you say, I'm going to try this technique. I'm going to try it for 30 seconds. Tell me when 30 seconds are up. And then you try the next technique. And the reason to do that is you want to keep time so that you know how long it has been before delivering the whole baby. But also it allows you time to try different techniques if you just do it for about 30 seconds. You can do 30 to 60, but I always think if you do it 30 seconds, then it allows me to try something else and I have more options. So this is a good practice to do on on every delivery. If you're ever Mm -hmm. on a delivery, as soon as that head is delivered, tell your partner, make note of the time right now head was just delivered because that's important because we want the rest of the baby delivered within what's the time? Five minutes. Okay, That's ideal, right? Some of these might deliver a lot faster, right? When it's a normal vaginal delivery and they just go smooth. But the shoulder, when you once you deliver the head, you're thinking shoulder dystocia, you want it out in about five minutes. So here are a couple of the different techniques. The first thing to try, and I would try this as the first thing in everybody. This is the one caveat to you could pick all these other techniques. I would definitely do this one first because it's non-invasive and it actually could be pretty successful. And so the first thing to try is what's called the McRoberts position. All that is, is hyperflexion of the mom's legs. That's all that May Roberts is. But we tend to add suprapubic pressure to that. So you have the mom hyperflex her legs. You can have her hold on to her legs because with contractions, she'll probably pull them even up farther and hyperflex them more. And then you can have a partner apply suprapubic pressure. How do you apply that suprapubic pressure? You're going to apply it above the symphysis pubis. You're going to look at where, which way is the baby facing. So if I am looking at the mom... I'm looking at the pelvis and I'm looking at the baby and the baby is facing towards my right, then what I'm going to have the partner is push towards the right. Because what you're trying to do from the external position is you're trying to push that baby's shoulder into their chest and decrease their biparietal diameter or their shoulder girdle diameter to kind of hope that you can get that baby under that symphysis pubis. That's the first thing to try. And it depends on what you read, but just the McRoberts by itself can resolve about 40%. When you add the suprapubic pressure, it, it goes up to 50%. But actually, 
actually some other literature has shown anywhere from up to 80% even, or and some even in 90. So it depends on what study you're reading. But the idea is that this is non-invasive. It's easy and quick to do. So I think this is a no-brainer for me. We should always start with this. Put them into the McRoberts with some super pressure. Hold that for about 30 seconds and see if maybe that baby kind of delivers. If that doesn't work, then you can move to internal maneuvers. The first maneuver to try is what's called the Reuben. And so basically all that is, is you take two of your fingers, you put them into the vagina behind the baby's anterior shoulder. So posterior aspect of that anterior shoulder. What you were trying to do with that suprapubic pressure externally, you're doing that internally now. You're trying to push forward that shoulder towards the baby's chest to about the 10 o'clock position and trying to diminish that fetal shoulder girdle, making that diameter smaller. So hopefully that then relieves through the symphysis pubis. If that doesn't work, you already have those fingers there. So I keep those fingers there. I take two other fingers and I put them in the anterior aspect of that posterior shoulder, that lower shoulder. And now you start rotating the baby and you rotate the baby 180 degrees and then you can rotate it another 180 degrees the other way if it doesn't work. What you're trying to do here is if you think about your pelvis, there's different diameters of that pelvis, right? It's not a perfect circle. So the idea is that as you're rotating it, you might get it to a slight like, you know, longer or diameter where maybe that shoulder will now dislodge and come out. If that doesn't work, then you can move on to trying to deliver the posterior arm. Because now what I'm thinking is, I can't get this anterior shoulder to dislodge. Now I'm going to go and try to deliver that posterior arm. The thought is once that posterior arm is delivered, that baby's going to fall in that pelvic outlet. And now you have a little bit more room and that shoulder will now dislodge and the baby will deliver. So what you do here is you have to make sure that you are actually reaching for that posterior arm. So go in front of the baby's face, not behind, because then you're going to get stuck, but go in front of the baby's face. I kind of go towards the back a little bit just to make sure I am getting that posterior shoulder and not that anterior one because the arm is flipped down. So once you feel that arm, you put your hand against the posterior fetal humerus and you swoop it up a little bit and bring it across the chest. Once you can palpate that fetal hand, you grasp that wrist and hand and you pull it along the side of the baby's face, like across the chest and in front of the baby's face and out. It's almost like a swimmer, like a backstroke. And then you apply some downward traction on the fetal head and arm and an assistant can apply some suprapubic pressure to help. But basically, what you're doing is you're swooping this arm across the baby's chest and out. The success rate of this is 84.8% in one study. So it's pretty successful. I think it takes a little bit more work and we're not so used to it. We simulate these all the time with paramedics and with residents and, and even with faculty. And the more times you do it, you get more comfortable with it. OBs actually like this technique and they feel that it works really well. So you might see an OB go right to this after the McRoberts and the suprapubic just because it does have a high success rate and they can get it out. That's why I'm saying you don't have to follow this algorithm, but I think it's important to understand that you have these different techniques, understand why they work, but also note that you have some different options because you have to have plan B and C as well. Yeah, perfect. So if you find yourself at a position, baby's head delivered, you tell your partner what time that is, suddenly you realize anterior shoulders not delivering, we need to start 
trying some of these aggressive maneuvers. Very first thing you're going to try, McRoberts position. Yep. Hyperflex mom's legs and have somebody apply super pubic pressure in the direction baby is facing in an attempt to relieve that anterior shoulder. Mm-hmm. While you're doing this, your partner is again keeping time. So you're going to do this for just 30 seconds. If this is not working after 30 seconds, you got to move on. And then you have two options after that. One is to attempt an internal sweep of that shoulder, similar to what your partner was doing with the super pubic pressure, where you, you kind of stick your two fingers in in there and try to push the posterior aspect of that shoulder that's against the pubic symphysis, that anterior shoulder, and rotate that down while you're rotating the back shoulder back. So yeah, you don't have to do that back rotation yet. So the first one is just putting that pressure on the anterior. The wood corkscrew is when you start putting that pressure on that, you know, now, now you put the other two fingers on the anterior aspect of that posterior shoulder, and now you start to turn the baby. So that's sort of that wood corkscrew maneuver. And then the reverse wood is when you go the other way. Okay. So you can try just the, the anterior shoulder first to relieve the pubic Mm -hmm. symphysis and you're still in the McRoberts. Yeah, so for this. the whole time, keep the patient with that hyperflexed legs. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then if just that anterior shoulder doesn't work, that's when you can try the full corkscrew right. by applying pressure to the posterior shoulder and you can do it either direction. And then if that doesn't work, or if you want to try this before the corkscrew is you can just sweep that posterior arm. You want to make sure you get the posterior arm. And then again, just like before, you're going to bring it across the chest and across the face to sweep that posterior arm out. And then hopefully anterior shoulder will have more room to kind of drop down below that pubic symphysis. Correct. Perfect. Well, those are kind of the the complications with delivery that we might run into. There was one other scenario. This is not necessarily a complication, but it is incredibly rare. And I've, I've heard of it happening once. And actually, when this happened, this was the first time I had ever heard of this. But none of the providers who were on scene initially knew what they were dealing with. So I do think that it's, it's worth discussing for our listeners here. And this is what's called an on-call birth. So to give a little background on on the call that I'm alluding to, a paramedic crew shows up to a delivery, and when they arrive, they're actually met by first responders who are already on scene. The first responders meet them and say, hey, you know, sad story, looks like she just had a miscarriage. And they're handed this kind of gelatinous red, pink blob, and they actually set this down on the bench in the ambulance. And as they're looking at it closer, they see a face, they see arms and legs, and essentially what looks like a full-term baby just kind of in this weird balloon, I guess for a lack of a better comparison. And it, and it dawns on them they think that what they're looking at is actually a baby potentially in an amniotic sac. And so they, they rip the sac open, they find a term infant, they perform some very basic resuscitation. I think some suction, maybe some rescue breath. And the, the infant has a heartbeat, spontaneous respiration actually does just fine in this call and is discharged from the hospital. Totally healthy. It, explain to me, Maria, what just happened here? What's an on-call birth and, and what should we do if we ever encounter this? Yeah, so I got to say, I have never seen one of these, right? But it is because it's really rare. They say that it happens in less than one in 80,000 births. So very rare, typically more likely that these babies are going to be a little bit more premature. And basically what it is, is the baby delivers in its amniotic sac, right? We think about deliveries and we think, oh, you know, your water breaks or the amniotic sac breaks and then the baby delivers and we see the baby delivering normally. But a baby can actually deliver in the amniotic sac and the amniotic sac can actually provide a buffer or sort of protection during delivery for the baby. You know, you can do a couple of things. I mean, they did the exact right thing. They they opened up that sack and then resuscitated the baby, right? Because the baby has all of its blood supply and, you know, well... 
I mean, now it's disconnected from yeah. the mom, as but it's still, still connected, connected right. to the cord. It's right. got its, it's blood got supply. something yeah. going there, right? But sometimes OBs can deliver babies like this in C-sections, also bring them all out with the amniotic sac intact, and then they can break that sac later. As far as complications, this is like any other pregnancies, right? Like you can always have respiratory distress, sepsis and hemorrhage. That's the same with any potential, you know, delivery that you have. But it sounds like that sac could be a little bit protective and the baby gets less bruising. And it protects also against having a cord prolapse because everything is in that sac and it's all protected. So, I mean, in this case, I think you just let the mom deliver. Like sometimes what will happen is that sac might break as you're delivering them and that's okay. You're just going to get a gush of fluid and then you go on with the normal vaginal delivery. So there's nothing specifically different that you're going to do other than you are going to have to snip at that sack and open that sack open once they're delivered. Yeah. I think it's just great to be aware of because you can take a deep breath, realize this isn't a terrible situation. Right. And then all you need to do is open the sack and things yeah. are normal. Yeah. That's great. All right. One step forward, which is a terrible situation is the perimortem pregnant patient or the critically ill pregnant patient. So say we have a pregnant patient who is, you know, 24 weeks or greater has essentially what we consider a viable pregnancy who is for whatever reason, trauma or what else critically ill. And, you know, for, for lack of a better term, dying in front of you, Talk to us about these situations. Yeah. These are always stressful, right? I mean, it's really hard when it when you have these patients. Now you have two patients, right? The baby and the mom. And I think when we think about resuscitative hysterotomy or what we used to call perimortem C-sections, right? Because that's the question. Like, what do you do? Do you need to deliver this baby? And historically, when you talk about trauma in a, a pregnant patient and they're coming in and they're in arrest... The thought was that this baby creates a metabolic demand on the mom. Plus, if you think about it, when definitely when you're in that 20 weeks and above, now that baby's probably putting some pressure on that vena cava and it's decreasing venous return and decreases cardiac output, right? So the thought was that if you deliver the baby and you remove that, that metabolic demand and that sort of compression pressure, then potentially you might be able to resuscitate the mom better. And so really, this was what was for the resuscitation of the mom. And I think, you know, if we think about it, when I think of a patient coming in that's critical and they're pregnant, I'm not probably going to reach for that ultrasound to date the mom because I need to kind of make a decision of, are we going to do a resuscitative hysterotomy? Yes or no? Pretty quickly, right? So typically what we do is we just feel. And if they're above the umbilicus, we're likely going to go ahead and move forward if this patient is in cardiac arrest and is being resuscitated. So what's important from an EMS perspective, when I know that somebody's coming in and they're pregnant and they are having active CPR that's ongoing, I need to know when did CPR start, right? When when did the patient arrest? And the reason for that and the reason we ask that is because the clock starts then. So if the patient has arrested and you're doing CPR, if we have not started a resuscitative hysterotomy within four minutes of that CPR starting, then we need to start it right away because best outcomes are for that baby to be delivered five minutes within the beginning, you know, from the beginning of cardiac arrest. So the numbers we tend to think about when we think of about resuscitative, the ideal numbers are 24 weeks because that's really when we're thinking about viability. Four minutes and five minutes. Four minutes is just that if you haven't started it, start it, right? It doesn't mean you have to wait till the four minutes, but if you haven't started it, we need to start it. And five minutes, best outcomes are at five minutes. 
So if I know there's a patient coming and they're having ongoing CPR and you tell me they're above the lycus, if they're between that 20 to 24 week, really then I'm probably doing it more just for the mom. Once you're above 24 weeks, now really you're doing it for both, right? Because now you have a baby that's truly viable and potentially may survive this. And now you can also potentially resuscitate the mom and get her back. These are tough. And the questions are always, well, what if it's after five minutes? And I think, you know, there definitely have been resuscitative hysterotomies that have been done after five minutes and the babies have done fine. And I think this is sort of a call, right? And you got to look in front of you and, and look at the baby's um, heart rate and potentially, you know, if the baby's still viable and there's a heart rate, I think most people would say, let's do it. And let's try to like, see if we can at least resuscitate the baby, even if we might not be able to resuscitate the mom. From a resuscitation standpoint, you're still going to do the same thing you would with normal, right? Anybody that, that has cardiac arrest, do your, you know, do your normal like ACLS, but this is where nothing is working, right? If you get return of spontaneous circulation and it's like two or three minutes, nobody's going to do the the resuscitative. Now, now, now that has changed things. The other part to think about here is that the easy thing to do, right? Once that patient is in cardiac arrest, you know, we say for any woman that's over 20 weeks, you want to transport them on their left side, that left lateral decubitus. The problem is that you can't do CPR that way, right? So in this case, you need an extra pair of hands and somebody to manually displace that uterus off of the vena cava to kind of help in that resuscitative process. And so if you are standing to the patient's right, right, you're going to push that uterus off the vena cava. If you're standing to the page on the patient's left side, now you're going to pull it towards you to try to kind of get that uterus off that uh, vena cava. Okay. So if you have the peri-arrest pregnant patient in front of you as an EMS provider, your most important questions are how far along are they? And if you mm -hmm. don't have ready access to that, is the uterus above the umbilicus? And then you want to note the time if they arrest, you want to note what time they arrested, because that will go into our decision making of how quickly do we need to perform the hysterotomy? And is it still reasonable to do so something like that? If they haven't arrested yet, you're going to want to make sure to place them on their left side or have an assistant displace that uterus off the inferior vena cava. Mm -hmm. And so displace the uterus to the left. And then you're going to resuscitate just like any other patient, any other critically ill patient that you have. Correct. Perfect. I guess we should also ask this question for any of these complicated deliveries. Are these things that you're doing on the scene, these maneuvers that you're doing on the scene, are you doing them all in the back of the ambulance that's rushing to the hospital? I mean, that depends, right? I mean, the reality is that the patient is going to be, if they're actively delivering, you're going to do it there. You're, there's, you know, it's going to be hard to get that patient now in the back of your ambulance, right? And say, hey, hold on, don't push it all, right? That's just going to be difficult. For cord prolapse, you're doing that in the back of your ambulance as soon as possible, right? Getting them as fast to the hospital as you can. As far as the shoulder dystocia the breach, the reality is you're probably going to be doing these there where you're at. With those two, I guess I should mention this also, if you cannot deliver the baby, you might actually have to push the baby back in. And that's called the Sinfonelli maneuver. And then you will have to relax that uterus and then kind of get the, pa the baby back in and then rush really fast to the hospital. So I think that's a little bit of a call on the paramedics, but I can't imagine this would be easy at the back of the ambulance while the ambulance is moving. But if you have that option and it gets you closer to the hospital, that's fine. But sometimes you might just not have that option because that, that baby's coming and, and it might be best to just kind of deliver it there where you're at. 
Yeah. So any active delivery that's progressing in front of you is probably going to be best to just get that done because it's going to need to happen before you arrive at the hospital. Anyways, when we talk about the shoulder dystocia, best outcomes are for delivery within five minutes. And so that's going to be before you arrive at the hospital as it is. So stay, do your maneuvers where you're going to be able to more move around and, and better do those maneuvers, but anything that's not going to be able to deliver in front of you, not progressing or umbilical prolapse that needs an OR and a C-section, mm-hmm. those you're going to be rushing yep. to the hospital. Perfect. All right. Can you summarize all this for us? Wow. This is a lot, yeah. but I guess in summary, I would say, you know, first of all, most deliveries go really well and go smoothly and and it's a happy moment. So mostly just, I think it's important for all of us to stay calm, to remember that we do have some techniques and some maneuvers, just be aware of the potential complications, be aware of the potential different deliveries that can occur and have an approach to them because then you'll be ready. Call medical direction. We're always there to support. We can talk people through these deliveries if need be and how to do the different maneuvers. And just know that this is a wonderful thing I know these are stressful, but most of these turn out doing well. And then the other part is if you have the option or if you have the opportunity is practice. And I think, you know, one of the best things we have done is added a lot of simulation in OB with our residents and with our paramedics, just because getting the hands on, even if it's not the real situation, but just getting the hands on and sort of working on that muscle memory of the different maneuvers is helpful. So if you have any opportunities to do that, do that or call me, I'll come and do it with everybody. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Perfect. Thanks so much, Maria, for talking us through all this and stay tuned for our next episode in a couple weeks where we talk about postpartum hemorrhage.